Welcome to Calling Operator. The podcast where we speak to operators in some of Australia's biggest startups. Find out how they got there and what their impact is. Connecting to Carrie Gray, Senior Program Manager at Atlassian. So, Carrie, welcome to Calling Operator. It's so good to have you. Oh, it's great to be here. I, I do want to congratulate you. I love your Calling Operator podcast. So <laughs> I enjoy listening to all your interviews and feeling a bit, I guess, out of my comfort zone doing a podcast with you today. No, you'll be, you'll be great. So, Carrie, just to start off, firstly, do you want to let us know what your current role is? Yeah, sure. So I've been at Lassian for almost three years. Currently, I'm a senior program manager and I've got a great portfolio. I focus on the enterprise business. And I do a lot of program management for our customer-wide programs. So in detail, this includes program management of our public roadmaps. I also am the PGM lead for our enterprise council and one of the PGM leads for our enterprise voice of the customer. Amazing. So I guess that's like really good context for why we're here, why we're chatting today. And we'll get into kind of how we met along the way, I'm sure. But to start off, did you always want to work in tech? Like what was the beginning of that story? What was that kind of, what's young Carrie? What did you study and how did you kind of get into this world? Yeah, for sure. Young Carrie, gosh. I, let's see, young Carrie. Well, should I start on the childhood? Maybe. If I yeah, let's start. Let's start in childhood. Let's start at the beginning. Okay. So look, I had an extraordinary childhood. I think on one hand, I was extremely lucky, you know, family of five. I was a middle child. I had an older sister and a younger sister. My dad ran his own business. We all went to amazing schools. And then on the other hand, we were extremely unlucky and life was, was really tragic as my older sister was diagnosed with a sarcoma cancer when I was 12. And that was a four-year battle which she lost uh, and I was kind of 16 at the time when she passed away. So I think my childhood was extraordinary uh, as early in life, I feel like I had a lot of privileges, but with huge, huge struggles. So I grew up fast and learned, I think, life lessons a lot earlier than many. And that, that kind of really, I think that experience kind of framed a lot of, uh, a lot of my decisions. And I ended up changing schools after um, Tammy died and, and kind of headed off to Barker and, and just craved that fresh start. And so, and I thrived. I, I just really hit my stride. I then felt very passionate. I think I, I kind of my two best subjects was commerce and art. Uh, mm-hmm. And I did really well in both of those. So I ended up heading off to, to UTS and I did a Bachelor of Business majoring in international business and marketing, which is quite informative because I actually do use my degree. And I, I got a grad role with, with Arthur Anderson in their management consulting team. And I, I just totally loved it because it just gave me access to such fabulous assignments and, and challenges. So early on doing lots of strategy development and, and business cases. And, and then I did do some tech like with CRM implementations, which were pretty big back at the time, lot frameworks around process improvement. And then of course you get thrown across industry. So I was kind of able to cover you know, banking and finance, manufacturing, reinsurance and, and entertainment pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And, and so you just, you know, you get to learn from such talented people. So I was 
super grateful for it being such an immersive and intense learning experience. But then quite quickly, I think it was like 2002, so two years into my grad role, Arthur Anderson collapsed due to the Enron scandal where the auditing business, I guess, was convicted of obstructing justice for, you know, shredding documents related to its Enron. So after two years, I lost my role and quickly had to work out how to pivot. And I I learned very early the importance of your network. Mm. Uh, And so, yeah, I, I guess I kind of bounced back through having worked really hard, I was kind of able to maintain my kind of consulting to Westpac at the time. Mm. And then I was able to kind of follow, I guess, my network to kind of Qantas and and IAG all doing consulting work and contracting. Yeah, right. So that is interesting because I did see in your early career, it went sort of consulting and then you moved between big global Westpac to Qantas. And then it looks like that some very kind of early 2000s you moved overseas and that was also something I wanted to kind of ask you about because then your geo-tracking on LinkedIn is all over the shop. You were sort of London, Jakarta, Singapore. (laughs) You're right. I, um, the story there was, you know, I met a boy. I you you were the one, I know, corny, corny, but it was the truth. And he kind of, you know, we would only be dating for like, I guess it was probably six, seven months. It was early. Mm. And he said, I've got this great work opportunity to go to London, you know, will you come with me? And, and I just, I just bit the bullet. I was like, ah, uh, I just got to go. I don't know what I'm going to do. But then I luckily, I did land on my feet, Barclay hiring like an inter- well, they were creating an internal management consulting team. And it was all on trend back then to have in-house management consultants. So luckily at Barclay, so it was a lot of Arthur Anderson business consulting or ex-business consulting, I guess, hires there. And, and so I was able to kind of hit my stride. And, and that was four years with, with Barclays doing some pretty cool projects. So I think my first project with them that I, I did for a couple of years was with Barclay Cards. So it was a travel, I guess. I, I did quite a bit of commuting to Northampton. We were setting up a new credit card product. So there's a lot of strategy and a lot of launch involved in that. And then I kind of scored uh, a great program, which was the Barclays brand relaunch. So they had redone their, their visual identity and, and logo. And so I got to kind of project manage their rollout across their European bank branches. So then travel looked incredibly glamorous as I, I got to bounce around Europe. Um, yeah, for that period, which was pretty fun. So the corny um, story was worth it in the end then. Yeah. So yeah, good that I, you um, said, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I haven't looked back. I can happily say, yeah, we've been together now for 20 years, which has made me <laughs> young, actually. But yeah, proud at the same time. So yeah, yeah that's definitely. nice. That's a really lovely story. And then I wanted to ask about what it was like working in Asia, Singapore, Japan. Yeah. I So we, I had just given birth to James, our, our mm-hmm. first son. And mm-hmm. so this is back in 2007. And, and my husband said, I've kind of got this great opportunity in Indonesia. And and Barclays was amazing and said, you can take your maternity leave. We'll hold your job for a year. You can take your maternity leave anywhere. Like doesn't doesn't matter for us, which was amazing, but also kind of really scary because I knew I knew we just had to go for it. So off we went and and I arrived in a third world country. And for context back in 2007, you know, only 80,000 homes in Jakarta were connected yeah. to sewage. 
So out of a population, you know, of like nine, 10 million at the time. So it, it was really third world. And it was a first time mum with a, a three month old baby. That's a, that's a lot. Well, and I didn't speak the local language. And yeah. I can honestly say I knew very little of the Muslim culture. And then just to make it more spicy, I had to be on a, a spouse visa. And it had huge restrictions. And for the very first time in my life, I was told in writing that I was not allowed to earn any money. And even though I was on maternity leave, I, I just really struggled with this. So Jakarta was, was just next level. And yeah. it was time, yeah, I had to just navigate so many challenges. And it was definitely a time where I was redefining and, and rethinking um, everything so I could work out how to how to make it work. Yeah, I can imagine also just being told that you are not allowed to earn money would be, I don't know how I would react to that. I've never even thought of that as, as a no. thing. That is bizarre. So first time mum in Jakarta, what did you do that, for that year? Well, there was a lot of tears and, and yeah. a lot of frustration, but I got there. And I think one of the big reasons was just being a, a kind of a creative thinker and oh, just really being in the moment. And and there was many pivotal moments, but there was one in particular. And that was, that was when I was in the car and, of course, there's constant traffic in Jakarta. You know, you can sit for three hours and move like five k's it's just another world and uh, and no footpaths to walk at the time and anyway it was considered too dangerous for me to drive so I had to have a driver but I can honestly say that was probably as one of the things I lent into as uh, I don't really enjoy driving so I was like <laughs> okay happy days so anyway Mungpa and I um always like got along instantly and and he was really special and pivotal in my time in, in Jakarta but we were in stuck in traffic as I mentioned I was feeding James and you know there was a beggar that was a mother and she's breastfeeding a baby a similar age to, to James and you know my heart just sank as as I've got the healthy chubby you know baby and and her baby was just so skinny and we always had petty cash in the front of the car you know tolls and and other payments and and so I kind of thought I was doing the right thing by asking Munkar to give her money and and he very politely told me that we shouldn't do that and I just didn't understand and again still sitting in traffic and it took me probably an hour of rephrasing questions and and trying to probe and then eventually I I asked it in the right way and uh, and again in his own way he he kind of answered it and essentially said you know, like we're just not solving any of the problems and, and he kind of, you know, explained how, again, there's a boy up a tree, we, you know, we'd been targeted and that the money would never go to the mother and the baby. Instead, it's just, you know, going to the men that are working that, you know, the exercise. And so at this moment, I just knew that I had to do something and, and the stars aligned as I was able to come, become like the joint president of the ANZA social welfare program. And, and all of a sudden I worked out I could leverage my skills with program management and I worked really hard on how we could better distribute grants and funding into the Indonesian community. So our focus at the time, we got a lot of money for supporting orphanages. We did a lot of cleft palate surgeries, education grants, and then C-sections for HIV positive mothers. And there was, you know, there was a lot of fraud and a lot of very poor or processes. So with a team of volunteers and ex other expats, learnt Bahasa, you know, I, I, you know, I kind of drove a lot of quality in the process through, you know, establishing relationships with the community and, and also really creating proper partnerships with the other associations that were also giving aid. 
And it was just incredibly rewarding and, you know, and needless to say, really transformational. So, so grateful for, for my time in Jakarta because it, as I mentioned, I, I just had to rethink things. I mean, my old formulas of what served me well in being happy and, you know, earning money and, and kind of working hard, I, I had to think completely differently. And, I, you know, I guess I arrived crying when I got to, you know, Jakarta for all the obvious reasons of just petrified and scared. And, and then I, I left Jakarta two years later, also crying, but with completely different tears of just such gratitude and reward and, and just a real sense of accomplishment of, and just, yeah, a sense of pride in, in what, in our experience there. Mm, I mean, I think, that's another thing, right? You can't really put a value on the importance of life experiences and being thrust into those different situations. So from Jakarta, where did you go back to Asia after that? Yeah. So the GFC hit mm-hmm. and we actually got relocated back to Melbourne. And I don't think this is on my LinkedIn profile, but I actually started up my own business. So I did technically have my own startup for a little bit. It was called Eco Goods. And mm-hmm. with another expat over in Jakarta, we negotiated getting the distribution license for Australia and New Zealand for fabulous like shopping bag product which was made out of recycled billboards in Jakarta and so in that in my 12 months in in Melbourne you know we did the trade shows we really tried hard to make a goal of it but Looking back, I think we sadly were just kind of ahead of our time as we was still I guess this is 2009 you know, it was still a relatively new movement back then. And then, you know, we had the opportunity to move to Singapore and, you know, by this stage, well, I had my third child, so two boys. I was pregnant with Tommy when I were in Jakarta and then in Singapore in my first year I had Soph. But it was when Soph was one year old, I was really ready to look for my work-related project in Singapore. But it was quirky because with now three kids under four and living away from family, I knew I had to be working part-time and mm. part-time work was really rare in Singapore. And like a bit of a side note, I think Singapore, like it's super fascinating because it's men that must take two years off work for military service and women because like kind of culturally and the support structures in place in Singapore, when after they've given birth, you know, they, they typically return to work, you know, four, six weeks later. So it's, it's fascinating how a lot of women kind of further in their careers having not taken, well, given the men are taking the two years off the military service. So some interesting, again, different yeah. dynamic there. I wonder if there's, you know how we have issues with like pay gap, but also superannuation gaps and things like that. I wonder if they have solved that a little bit better than we have just because the men are taking two years off. Yeah. Look, absolutely. I always found, like I I really found Singapore super inspiring there. I I really learned a lot uh, for sure. And I guess in terms of connecting to startups. Because part-time work is rare, uh, I ended up meeting like two co-founders who were two years into building their business and they were a high growth HR executive search startup called Chapman CG and and we hit it off and and they were like we can only afford you a couple of days and I was like oh this is just perfect I only want to work a couple of days so I took a my initial role with them was to leverage their management consulting skills and they and I love this they they didn't quite have a strategy, but they instead had a, a worry list 
And my role was to be given, well, just solve a worry. So they would pick a worry from this list and then kind of give me, would agree on, on the amount of days and then consult back on what I thought were ways to move forward or, or solve or progress. And we kind of quickly formed this really great way of working together. So hit fast forward, you know, kind of my part-time started to scale and, and I was able to to really help them with a lot more of their operational activities. And yeah, really enjoyed scaling their business with them from, uh, it was kind of 20 people to 80 people. You know, they, they pretty much decided in 2018 that they wanted to pursue an exit. And so then I got to experience helping them execute that. So that was kind of took like three attempts and was a, a bit of a journey, but super valuable and and then in 20 yeah I think it was about March 2019 we were yeah able to sell Chapman CG to a Japanese investor called Will Group yeah I got to do all the due diligence and and just all that support for, for the co-founders which was yeah fabulous so it almost feels like you have a lot of general experience but you've had these very kind of interesting opportunities to go quite deep on a lot of things. Absolutely. What country did you find working in had the harder kind of cultural change? Jakarta definitely culturally was next level, you know, going from a first world to a third world, going from, you know, kind of working full-time in a well-established corporate to then being a first-time mom and working obviously in the social welfare, not-for-profit sector. Mm. Like, I didn't speak Bahasa and, and then get around, yeah, learning, you know, learning a new language, understanding all, I guess, the cultural, yeah, was a huge journey. But I, I feel super grateful because I think I just learned so much around the ability to redefine and rethink and be creative. I think I passionately believe there's always a way, but you've just got to reflect and be curious enough to to be able to find it that leads nicely into like what do you think your biggest strengths are as an operator what do you think has kept you kind of propelling forward through all these opportunities the jakarta story really to me is you picking up your bootstraps and getting on with it you could have just sat around i think true but you didn't take that so what do you think those strengths that help you propel forward are? that's a great question i think my strengths are well i take a lot of inspiration from Elizabeth Gilbert's Hummingbird Person Theory. And I, I don't know if you have listened to her podcast, but she she has a great podcast, which is called The Curiosity Driven Life. And here she talks about being a hummingbird. And, and she says, hummingbirds move from tree to tree, flower to flower, field to field, trying this and trying that. And two things happen. They create incredibly rich and complex lives for themselves. And they also end up cross-pollinating the world. She also goes on to kind of say that this is a service you do if you're a hummingbird person because you bring an idea from here to over there where you learn something else and you weave it in. And then you take it to the next thing and your perspective ends up keeping the culture aerated, mixed up and, and open like to new uh, to the new and fresh. And I, I guess that's what I have always tried to do throughout my life is to be the hummingbird and look at how you can kind of connect dots through experiences and, and then be able to be unique in the value that you, you're bringing. So that's that hummingbird person theory is something that I always try and apply and I'm quite lucky at Atlassian because I do work across 
a diverse portfolio and running, you know, a lot of, whether it's enterprise council, whether it's my enterprise weekly funnel, whether it's program management of the public roadmaps, I'm, I'm kind of constantly looking, you know, to, to leverage those connecting threads of, of insights and, and value and, and that mindset and discipline has, has really, I think, served served me well. Yeah, that's such a nice analogy. And that's, I always talk about my background as slightly all over the shop, but that's, that feels like a way better way of talking about it. So I like that. And it's true, right? Because as you take roles and then there are so many times in my life where I think back to, oh, that's like, that's a skill that I picked up running restaurants. Do you know what I mean? That ability to read the room and, and understand when you walk into a boardroom, the way that people are feeling, that's actually from this role that I thought had no correlation to my current life from seven years ago. So yeah, I completely agree with that entirely. So jumping into what you're doing now. So let's fast forward to how did you, how did you come to be an Atlassian three years ago? One of Australia's big titans. <laughs> yeah. So I guess we moved back to Australia and yep. I really, I just really knew I wanted to work for Atlassian. I just didn't know how. At the same time, you know, I'd been out of the Australian market for, you know, just over 12 years having lived abroad. And I guess that kind of brings us to where I met you. We, we both were successful in applying for the Startmate Female Fellowship. And I guess we were their first female cohort. Yep. In March and, of 2020. <laughs> yeah. And we, well, from my memory, there was about, yeah, 12 of us from Sydney and, and 12 of us from Melbourne. And, you know, we had a, a really small kind of kick-ass cohort. And then, of course, COVID landed and then the whole program kind of had to transition to being virtual and that trip to Silicon Valley, which um, one day we, we still need to make that happen. But I guess I, I look back on that because, you know, we had a fabulous cohort and then the challenging circumstances also, I think, bred a lot of creativity and and look. I, I had already applied, like jumping back to Atlassian, I'd already applied for a couple of program management roles and yeah. and I did go, I had already gone through a couple of rounds of interviews, but I just couldn't get an offer over the line. But I hung in there. Like I did my homework. I, you know, I worked out how to get those warm introductions. I used the Startmate Fellowship, you know, really build further on on that. And I think with Atlassian, like the honest answer is that I got creative. I had listened uh, to Giselle and Faye, who were Mike and Scott's executive assistants at the time, and, and they had spoken so passionately about how they supercharge and work strategically with the founders. At the same time, an executive support role had opened up for the chief experience officer and and I got it. And, and you know, I, I just had an amazing year. I got to listen and learn and uh, and really do some amazing work helping, you know, Jürgen and, and then Sarah Atkinson, who was head of programs and practices. But it was incredibly, oh, I'd recommend it to anyone. I, I mean, I got to sit in there in the CXLT, so customer experience leadership team and, and you know, we'd have three hour long deep dive sessions. And so for an entire year, I got to you know, watch everything in action, take all the actions, minutes, and really look at how decisions were being made. And it was, you know, just such a powerful way to learn about Atlassian. And then, you know, and then I, look, as I mentioned, I'm kind of already up to my third role with Atlassian. I, I then leveraged all of that learning. I did move into to program management and yes, and now I'm very much focused on our enterprise business. For the, for people playing at home that don't know what program management is too, because I think a lot of the time these roles can be slightly ambiguous in nature. 
how do you describe what program management is? And also maybe take us on a quick little journey of how you knew that's what you wanted to do. Okay. Well, I think I, if I'm going to start from the beginning, I knew I wanted to work for Atlassian because I really believe in finding a company where you truly identify with their mission and values. And Atlassian's mission is to help unleash the potential of every team. And that's exactly what I wanted to do. And and across all my work, I've loved looking at how to be innovative and, you know, and raise the bar and, and do, and, you know, and do work better. So, and then equally, I had worked with Atlassian products and I really enjoyed working with their products and equally their company values really stood out to me as also aligning with my personal values. So I guess that, that hopefully explains why I had such clarity on, on I wanted to work for Atlassian and I would always encourage yeah, anyone that asks me for advice, I, I always say like, find that company that you know that you are a great fit, that you're going to love their mission and that you're going to be able to do the best work that you, that you can. And, and then from a program, I was always, I guess I've always focused on the work at hand and, and the people that I'd be working with. So I knew program management was a strong fit for me because I am a utility player. You know, I have a lot of, I guess my background in management consulting serves me well. That said, I, you know, I hadn't worked with engineers, so I definitely had gaps, which does explain why it took me a few goes. But I, I found my sweet spot because now the work that I do, especially focusing on a lot of our customer programs, I'm able to do kind of end-to-end delivery, working cross-functionally across the business. And so what that looks like, and, and I think a really easy example is, is probably our public roadmaps. So each quarter, I work with our product teams across Atlassian and we capture, you know, like the latest updates that we want to be making to our public roadmaps for cloud and for data center. And we're going to be, we share these updates proactively with our customers. And so the public roadmaps is like a very public commitment to our customers on on where Atlassian is investing. Mm -hmm. And so work with all the teams, as I mentioned, product, also marketing around our content, you know, how we communicate and then obviously our, how we publish our, you know, on our website. Um, so that's just one example, I guess, of, of one of our customer programs that I manage from start to finish. There's obviously a lot of sign-off and approvals um, and absolutely it kind of correlates with the Enterprise Council, which I help facilitate. Um, and the Enterprise Council, to context, that's set up to serve and really be the advocate for our enterprise customer needs mm. across every Atlassian product team. So that is a group of approximately 20 leaders uh, and we come together monthly and I work with them to kind of curate that agenda to make sure that we can serve that purpose around advocating for our enterprise customer needs and, and making sure the connectivity into our strategy and in our execution of our public roadmap as well. And then equally, I guess another program I can bring to life is our enterprise voice of the customer. So, you know, this is where we use JIRA to have our qualitative feedback loop. And that's between our enterprise customers and our product. The program management piece, to be clear, is working out how we leverage 
our customer insights and feedback and making sure again that we are set up to success in how we deliver that. And I guess what I love about Atlassian is you you get to use all our own products, you know, mm. clearly to be solving our problems. And, you know, I, as a program manager, you know, get to live our, our mission to unleash, you know, team's potential. I get to do that internally. Yeah, I was um, going to say, so you're like the me, ultimate operator. You're like the cog in the machine that's making the machine that makes the machine work. Exactly. So you kind of constantly dog booting and testing um, and iterating and, and sharing those knowledge. And then I guess I am really keen to kind of point to the Atlassian playbook because, mm. again, you asked around, well, how do you kind of bring program management to life? And, and I guess, you know, we use our tools, our company tools, in addition to plays and, and practices. And you combine those two together. And that's really what program management is all about. So the Atlassian playbook is, you know, is public and, and has a amazing list of, of resources that any company can use from, you know, how to run a retro, how to, how to, how to run a health monitor, you know, how to do a DACI, how do you actually drive structure around decision-making, you know, how do you do a risk register? Lots of really basics and, and strong fundamentals that we know from a when you weren't wanting to run a program, these are just all essential, you know, having that shared understanding, project posters. We've got so many templates there. So it's a, a really fabulous resource that I always encourage everyone, you know, to, to leverage. I've used it for product management stuff. When I was at Baraha, there was often times where I just needed to brush up on an engineering concept that I had no clue on and I've gone straight to Atlassian. Because I think their documentation is some of the best. So I totally agree with you on that. So then with all these kind of journeys and, and lessons along the way, what, what would be like four or five things that you think you've learned, you've now accumulated with this job that you really wanted and really went for? What are those lessons that you think you've picked up along all these? How do you, how do you feel like that journey has allowed you to do? Yeah, look, it's a great, great question. I think I have a philosophy and, and I did, I read this a while back and it, it kind of said there are three simple rules in life. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't go after what you want, you'll never have it. The second was if you don't ask, the answer is always no. And then the third one is if you don't step forward, you're always in the same place. And, and those three simple rules have always stuck with me. I think being constantly being curious and being prepared to take risks and getting out of your comfort zone and then backing yourself that you'll work it out and you'll just be so much better for it is kind of what has always served, served me well. I guess I'm also naturally one of those people that, because I am curious, I'm probably, you know, more of a yes than a no person <laughs> and I thrive, but I'm also very work fit. Like I, I get a lot of adrenaline out of learning and, and being curious and, and I guess it's, it's just kind of served me well. So, uh, you know, I, I take a lot of notes. I have a lot of habits that again, serve me, serve me well when I'm wanting to kind of supercharge and, and make, make a huge difference to the team that I'm, that I'm working with. I also feel very lucky. I, I work with like incredible people. Mm. So I feel particularly spoiled that. I get to do my thing and, and just learn, you know, learn from them. So I, yeah, really lucky from that perspective. So what's something that you think is a strong 
work operation of yours or something that you do really well that you've refined over time? I'm very disciplined with weekly reflection. I guess to the extent that I, I actually created a end of week reflection play for Atlassian and that's just made up of seven simple questions, which I'm happy to talk you through if you want to hear them. No, do it. So this is your reflection as in, I've just yeah. finished my week. I've just done a big week. Let's say a lot's been going on. It's Friday afternoon. It's four o'clock and I decided to do a reflection exercise. Yeah, you nailed it. It's Friday afternoon cool. and <laughs> let's let's throw out there that, you know, your goal is that you want to make your kind of complex and demanding work world um, single and make sure that, you know, you set yourself up to be spending time on, on what really matters. And so that was the kind of broad context that we were working on. The first question is really, really easy. And it's just asking you how simple did your week feel? So we use like a fist of five, one, two, three, four, five. And where mm -hmm. you'd say like one is, would be reflecting a completely chaotic, reactive, you know, overly complicated week. And, and five would be, which is kind of simple, calm and effective week. And the power in this question, if you're like scoring yourself, you know, three or less, then, you know, the action here is to really dig deeper by finding out why, you know, and like common things can be that's cropped up as, you know, you've got too many back-to-back -back meetings, you've totally overscheduled, you lack prioritization, you know, you just don't have enough deep work sessions. So again, a lot of common sense, but it's actually really powerful when you pinpoint your own reason for why your week, you know, just didn't feel simple. The, the second question is, you know, did you achieve your priorities? And I think what's powerful here is we also invest a lot, well, I do, I invest a lot of time in actually understanding why I've chosen that thing to be a priority. So I would answer, this is a priority because I also, I also at the start of my week, I would be defining, you know, like how it's going to be successful. So if I've chosen a priority that I've set on a Monday, then on a Monday, I'm actually already visualizing what success looks like. Because if you have that ability in your ritual up front, then you are able to then kind of work out the key steps and tasks to achieving that priority, which ultimately will obviously give you a higher rate of of success. Saying we're, we're kind of on a Friday and you're reflecting on whether you achieve those priorities. I also believe if you want to understand, you know, your priorities on a Friday, I do go back and I actually like look at, look at the calendar because if you want to unleash, you know, your weekly potential, like your calendar just plays such a significant role in, you know, in helping keeping you focused and, and guided. So that's the second question. The third question that I would ask myself on a Friday is if I haven't achieved the priorities, you know, I, I focus on the why. And again, this is to give you those insights on, you know, are you scheduling, you know, your deep work at the wrong time? Did you underestimate how long it would take? Are you Did mm. the priorities shift? Were the priorities not realistic in the first place? You know, was it too much noise? I think when you actually focus on, on the why, you're going to get a lot of valuable um, insights to set yourself up the following week. The fourth question that I ask is, you know, what, what, what were my weekly highlights? And, you know, I'm a real believer that like your week just can't be all taxing and energy sucking stuff. And you have to understand, you know, what, 
a highlight is for you. And, and like, you know, again, we're all, all really different around that and we've got different definitions of, you know, kind of wins and, and highlights. And, you know, for me, sometimes it's just like some really insightful conversations. It's really valuable feedback. I'm a big believer that you need to, like, you actually need to plan highlights. Like I, I do, when I know what brings me joy or, or makes a highlight, then I think, and I have that knowledge, I can proactively plan that into my upcoming weeks. And it, it definitely sets me up for success. It's also a bit of a, a good prompt at the end of the week on making sure you express your gratitude. Uh, so look, at Atlassian, we have a, an internal kudos system. And so I create that as part of my, my Friday ritual reflection as well. So that's question four. Question five is probably my favorite question. And that's what have you been avoiding that week? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is one of those tasks, those conversations or decisions did you avoid? And then you kind of take it to the next level and you ask yourself why. Why? Yeah. And look, there's there's lots of reasons here. You You can be, you know, maybe it was a task you just actually shouldn't to do and and maybe it's simple that you really just need to progress that to to delegate it move it on to the right person maybe it's a task that was just kind of too big or complex and you know and then you know you need to actually invest the time to to break it down it's too hard to get started you know again another common one like maybe you you kind of procrastinated you know and you got to identify a better time of day to actually do that task so I yeah I I feel there's a lot of value in being honest with yourself around what you've avoided and and really understanding why you avoided so mm. again you can you can move forward and progress through that and then question 6 because we all love data is um actually committing to a score so the question is you know what's your quality score for the week and and I use a scale of like 2 is a great week 1 Plus one is good week. Zero is a, you know, mere week. Negative one is a net negative and negative two I define as a bad week. And here we're kind of consciously looking, you know, to measure and correlate what makes a good week. So with scoring, you know, I, I look for patterns over time given I do this on a weekly basis and, and again, look at, you know, how I, like when I achieve a two week, like I really look at how I can, you know, replicate that. And and I think the data just gives you more confidence to help set yourself up for success week mm. after week. And then question seven is also a bit of a favorite and it's simple. It's, it's what can I do differently next week? And so this kind of nicely closes it out on making sure that you foster like continuous improvement on how you mm. can keep refining. I, I also feel like this question is a really good one because it, it kind of prompts you to think about it from a couple of angles. Like, you know, what do you want to stop? What do you want to start? What do you want to continue? And then mm. it just feels easier to then go make it happen because you've got that mm. clarity. So that's my little seven question play that served me well on, you know, how I keep trying to set myself up for, you know, a great week on week. No, I love that. I also think it's important to think about why those things are happening because it's one thing to be like, oh, that was a crap week and go home and forget about it for the weekend Mm -hmm. and then come back on Monday. But if you keep doing that without actually figuring out why it was a crap week or what what could be better about it next time. Totally, because I think it's, you know, it's just those small and necessary adjustments 
that you can make week on week and they just add up mm. over time mm. to making such a significant difference. And from your full career, do you think that there's ever been something that you've had to really kind of overcome a time might have felt really difficult but has kind of added to your operator tool? I think a real challenge for me, being honest, was, you know, I, I fell pregnant with James pretty young. I was really nervous about balancing a career and motherhood. And I guess I, I, I now look back and I wish I had more confidence in really understanding that you could be an amazing role model for your kids and them that you can balance work and family. And I, I also believe that motherhood gives you like more skills, which makes you even more valuable in the workforce. You know, there's an amazing TED talk and, and it's called Hire a Mum and it's by Martha Ivester and she was a, like a Google exec and she really champions around motherhood and, you know, the importance to, to kind of recognize how you develop some really critical skills that are super valuable in the workplace around, you know, empathy and resilience and, and communication. And, and she goes to the extent of, you know, also advocating for women to, be highlighting, you know, their motherhood skills or their skills in motherhood on their resume and, and in job interviews. And, and I do, when you need a boost of confidence on, on how parenthood can make you even more valuable in the workforce, I, I just think her TED talk is, is super, super inspirational. So whilst, you know, whilst I've had a lot of challenges, I think kind of one where I look back and yeah, and wish that I guess, yeah, someone had told me about that earlier because I, I really, I think, you know, it can get really complicated and tricky in, uh, you know, um, balancing a career and motherhood. But, uh, yeah, it, it, I really passionately believe it, it serves you well in, in the workforce in terms of the skill sets that you get are, are truly transferable. But I think that is actually such an important, and I probably haven't thought about it in this way before. But I, I think like as you were speaking, I was just thinking about so many times when I've been talking to people about job opportunities or doing interviews and I, I always kind of bring up the hospitality thing because people love it, right? Because it shows that you can manage a lot of things at once, deal with lots of different personality types, communicate, react quickly to situations, which is very similar to traits you would learn having a child. But really? I don't think we're at the point yet where someone would be open to say, you know, like what I've learned parenting is actually really helpful in a force because you're right. Like it's just emotional intelligence and, and being able to communicate, which are two of the things that people struggle with. And, you know, particularly in really fast paced environments, having that awareness is incredibly useful. A hundred percent. I, I get really excited when I see, you know, the progression with paternity leave. Yeah. And I think it is such a game changer in in now rebalancing and you know you know having the opportunity for both mums and dads to you know to have to take their time you know a stay at home parent for a period and equally know that that skill set's actually really transferable in the workforce yeah. and, and it builds so yeah. many soft skills totally and collectively it's yeah, it's it's a game changer for society. So, yeah, I feel really passionate, I guess, around that topic of, yeah, balancing career and, and kind of motherhood and the transferability and, and, and the skills is something that I hope, you know, really does get more broadly 
and publicly recognized and and people get yeah really passionate about that too yeah no it's it's just something i've been reading a lot about lately this idea that like you it's not about necessarily having it all i think we need to shift that focus of women don't need to be able to do everything at once but they can choose what is important to them and that can be a mix of of family and career and it doesn't mean that you have to be some kind of insane super person that never sleeps so I think that's it's nice to hear that you didn't find that to be a negative in the end and that you wish you could go back in time and say hey it's actually gonna be fine and Atlassian seems like a very supportive place to be working with kids as well Oh, absolutely. Uh, my kids adore Atlassian. They, <laughs> you know, now that we're clearly able to be back in the offices, they, you know, they come in, they get their ice cream, meet me for, <laughs> meet me for lunch. You know, they start playing ping pong. They just think that working at Atlassian is, is the best. So they're already, uh, already well on their way for, uh, <laughs> for their tech jobs. <laughs> <laughs> so some really quick ones to finish up. The first one is, are there any resources, you've mentioned some already, but is there any other resources that could be a book, could be a podcast, could be anything that you find yourself suggesting to people that you mentor or that you just think have been really pivotal in your career? Yeah. Well, I've got to give a shout out. We're um, just about this week to kick off our Atlassian flagship event for Team 23 in Vegas, but digitally it will also be online from about the 25th of April for a while and and. You know, there's over like there's going to be over a hundred sessions that people can access on teamwork and humanity and the tech intersect, you know, and how Atlassian can unleash your team's potential. So, I really encourage um, people to check it out. It's going to be amazing. It, it it always is year on year, and and it does just get better and better. So, I uh, yeah, big shout out to Atlassian Team Twenty Three. The other. The other resource that I love, especially because I'm passionate about mindset, is is Ben Crow. I think, you know, Mojo Expresso is absolutely fabulous and, yeah, really encourage. Like he's got an app which you can pay for to do his course. I think it's like $250. That said, he regularly releases on, on Spotify his own podcast and, again, on LinkedIn. So you can kind of follow him to see if it is your thing but and equally too he's done a lot of a lot of podcasts too always walk away enlightened whenever I listen to him and and inspired and yeah strongly encourage everyone yeah amazing and then we've got two quick ones one is who do you think is a operator in the Australian startups ecosystem who's just killing it yeah I'd give a shout out to Tony Nolson She's currently head of sales at EQL and, and she's ex Amazon and she's yeah, super driven, super creative, and she's just super fun. I'd uh, highly recommend a chat with Tony. So just to finish off, what do you see? This is kind of like a broad question and you can kind of take yeah. it as you will, but what, what do you think the future of, of everything is going to be from your perspective at the moment? So like, what's the next? What does the next five years look like as someone working in, as I said, one of the Titan startups? Where do you think the ecosystem is going to go from here? I think the next 12 months are going to be really hard. You know, it's a really challenging and complex time and everyone's got to, you know, work harder, smarter and really nail execution and delivery for sure. I, I see, you know, AI as being like super exciting over the next 
yeah, I guess, you know, from now and, and to, you know, and, and definitely over the next five years and it's going to be, yeah, super transformational across products and the industry as a whole. Carrie, that was amazing. I just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast and we hopefully will hear from you again soon. Oh, I look, I'm super keen to congratulate you, Paloma, too, for your uh, calling operator podcast. Like I, I really love listening to your interviews and it's been a real pleasure to to come on and, and have, have this chat with you. And, and, you know, we share the same belief, which is I think stories bind us together and, and every one of us has the power to encourage someone else. So I hope, I hope someone gets some, some advice and encouragement from this. And that's it for today. Today's episode was recorded and edited by me, your host, Philemma Newton, with original music composition by Stephen Shouten and photography by Philip Lemazuria. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.